The Feast of Christmas is about the presence of Christ to the church. The Feast of Epiphany is about the manifestation of Christ to the world. And after Epiphany proper on January 6th, we have a series of Sundays in the liturgical calendar that are Sundays in Epiphany. And the purpose of them is to focus our attention on the idea of how do we understand uh, making manifest Christ to the world in every age. So how do we think about our role as Christian disciples in this process? How do we understand some of the vehicles for um, grafting ourselves onto the body of Christ like baptism? And what do we understand uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church to mean? Because at our baptism and actually on Pentecost, our patron Luke in the book of Acts says there is a transfer now from the Holy Spirit of God in the person of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry to the Holy Spirit now in the church where individual Christians personally and corporately together become both the beneficiaries of the Holy Spirit of God and the fiduciaries. We are the stewards of God's Holy Spirit. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us to show us the way. So in my sermon this morning, I want to preach on all three readings. The reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, which in uh, biblical uh, interpretation is known as the second uh, servant song of Isaiah. The reading from 1 Corinthians, where Paul is uh, beginning his letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians. And the gospel where we have John's description of Jesus' baptism, which is, I think, more spare than the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and uh, an identification of who Jesus is. It is about the person and work of Jesus, and a description of what that means and how Christians have understood it over time. So in all these readings, three themes emerge. God's plan and purpose being centered in Jesus, Jesus as a servant, particularly the suffering servant, and the universality of the church and its importance. In the reading from Isaiah, we have, I was told never to say things like this, but you know I do all the time. We have a textual problem in Isaiah. Because when you read it, you can get the, it's not absolutely clear whether the servant is an individual or the servant is Israel. So how do we understand what it means? Is it talking about a specific person like Isaiah the prophet? Or is it talking about the 12 tribes and how they understand their prophetic vocation together? So David Brewer has solved the problem by suggesting that it's both. Thank you. So we're talking about Isaiah's prophetic ministry, and we're talking also about the vocation of Israel and how we understand that over time. Christian people will read these texts in Isaiah and in other places and understand them to be 
predictive of the coming of Jesus, predictive of the incarnation. In actual history, they may not have been directly referring to that, but after the uh, life and work of Jesus, the work and the person of Christ, his followers said, this is who this refers to. We've been reading this for centuries, and if we'd have kept our eyes open, we would have had some idea uh, with regard to who he is. So that Jesus embodies in himself uh, the suffering servant, the servanthood of God. And by extension, if we understand Jesus to be the template that we lay over our own spiritual development, the strengthening of our faith, the understanding of our vocation more deeply and fully, we can see that in some way we participate in this. We participate in uh, the servant in servanthood. And I was listening to a lecture uh, earlier this week where the, the uh, speaker said, opening his talk, he said, if you live long enough, you're going to experience some suffering. So he said, I'm beginning with the good news. So what that really means, in my opinion, of course, is, is that we have it now in some way in context. You know, Buddha, the Buddhists say, life is suffering. So we move from, the whole issue is how do we get out of this? Bouncing around inside that triangle. And some would say we do it by the process of learning to uh, give full play to the generous impulse within each of us, our humanity, which is hardwired. Hardwired to extend, to serve. So in this reading from Isaiah, you're presented with one of the classic texts that affirms this for Christian people, uh, certainly from the jump, from the biblical witness uh, talking about the life of Jesus. I became an Episcopalian when I was 18. And I uh, was deeply impressed by the idea of being part of the church I came from a relatively when a, a successful American homegrown religion called Christian Science. I was raised firmly in the bosom of Mary Baker Eddy. <laughs> but the thing was that they, there was no, not real, uh, really any concept of the church, and it became so subjective and individualized that uh, what was like a breath of fresh air to me was I was part of something now that was way bigger than me, way bigger than me, and it wasn't dependent upon whether I thought it was true or not. It's there, right? So then the question becomes, how do you learn things about what the, the deep things of this uh, religious tradition mean? What have they taught? Some people get into it and then begin to think that it's a whole series of do's and don'ts and dogmas and doctrines and things that become either oppressive or one is unable to understand them and therefore you just sort of give up. But if you read them carefully, you begin to realize that internally in the historical wrestling with all of these things, 
there has developed over time a certain flexibility in our ability to understand the deep truths of Christian faith and belief. I was thinking about this, um, writing the sermon this week, and I remember when I was a kid, I used to watch a television show called Dr. Kildare. And in one of the episodes of Dr. Kildare, Richard Chamberlain was uh, the doctor, one of them, at a summer camp for kids. And in the course of uh, being the doctor and doing minor things, a kid got into a bad accident and uh, was not able to breathe on his own, and he needed to have a tracheotomy, where they cut a slit in your right here so that you can breathe until they figure out how to get that fixed. So they're in the tent, and one doctor or a medical student and Kildare are in the tent together, and he's holding the lantern up over this boy, and Kildare takes the scalpel, and he makes the cut. And he looks and says, that vein is not supposed to be there. And the medical student looking down says, yeah, but on him it is. So Gray's Anatomy may be a great help in the main or whatever anatomy books they use these days, but sometimes the vein's not where it says. Sometimes things are not like they, we believe they have to be. They're different. And I believe firmly that the church is the location and the place where we come to that knowledge. Many years ago at a clergy conference in this diocese, the uh, presenter for the conference was Herbert O'Driscoll, who is a famous Canadian priest. He was the dean of Christ Church Cathedral in Vancouver for a number of years back in the early 70s. And he's done a number of things. He has a reputation in Canada for being a very fine preacher, and he is. And he said in the course of the lecture, all spirituality worth its salt institutionalizes. See, we're always thinking that the real authentic stuff is outside somewhere, right? It's outside and people have it and now they have the way their own, you know, I'm spiritual and not religious and so forth. By the way, I don't want to throw cold water on that. If people are spiritual but not religious, good. At least there's a beginning, right? At least there's a way we begin to think about something larger than we are uh, moving forward in our life and maybe get to a little less... Uh, I, 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 me, me, me. He also talked about uh, an, in a, a photograph that was in Newsweek magazine. This was about 1995, 94, 95. And there had been a terrible earthquake in Italy. And in this photograph, a church had been vibrated so that it all fell down. <laughs> So you were looking at the inside of a church like it had been bombed where the altar was there. And the priest was in there celebrating the Eucharist. He had his vestments on and he was saying mass. And all of a sudden there was an aftershock. And it was right when he was saying the words of institution over the wine. And so he had the chalice held up like this and you saw him go... to steady himself 
And he said, friends, that's the situation on the ground for us today about many, many things. So I'd rather have the church than not have the church. It, it can help and it might not hurt. In the gospel, we have the conclusion of chapter 1. John the Baptist is speaking of Jesus as the Lamb of God. He is, the, the, John is describing the baptism of Christ, the descent of the dove, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the affirmation that Jesus is the bringer of the Holy Spirit. And this is a text in the New Testament where Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. Theos. One of the places where you, it's right there in the text. So he's describing now how Jesus in his person embodies these things. And we see the beginning of his work in the calling of the apostles. And the famous word that lots of preachers have made uh, homiletical hay out of. And that is when two of them are following him and says, where are you staying? Jesus says, come and see. The invitation is to follow him. On the way. And so when we think about following the Savior in his work, we're doing this now to be able to see in this man's words and in this man's works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And more particularly, it means that we haven't just been watching this played out we have been given tools that we can use. We have been given some tools as we follow him on the way. Speaking of the church, I forgot to mention that Reginald Fuller, who's a very famous New Testament scholar in the Anglican Church, uh, talks about the church with a capital C and the church with a small c. And he said it, it is often difficult because of the congregationalist tendencies in our common life to make the distinction. Most churches, even uh, church, churches like the Anglican Church or uh, the Roman Catholic Church or the Lutheran, uh, they tend to be very congregational. We think about our own, church, our own parish, our own congregation. And he says that it's important to understand uh, that the church with a capital C is not the sum of the churches with a small c, but each church with a small c embodies the church with a capital C. So that means as we seek to understand the person of Christ and we seek to model the work of Christ in the world, that we labor at St. Luke's Church to be Church with a capital C. Barbara Harris, the retired suffragan bishop of Massachusetts, I've heard her preach a half dozen times. She's a good preacher. And she stands up and she says, Hello, church. That's how she begins her sermon. 
And it's an acknowledgement that you and I constitute the church with a capital C, not just a small c. So this we give thanks for the person and work of Christ and think about ways St. Luke's can be not church with a small c, but with a capital C. Amen.